0: This is an easy, interesting and exciting time for our church. We're, uh, we're, we're about to, in essence, replant the church. And in church planting, uh, it's so much different than like, how things operate in an established church world. Because they say that in the first seven years of church planting, you basically restart your church at least seven times. And so we feel like we've kind of restarted a couple of times because you're really trying to find your place and what God's doing in the world and in the city. And that requires some adjustments along the way. And we've wanted all along to be in the neighborhood. We have an opportunity to move into the neighborhood. And uh, so we're going to be moving on June 29th to Gregory Lincoln Education Center and, uh, and that's a really great opportunity for us. It's a beautiful building. The principal is a Christ follower and has a great vision for a school and his kids. And so we get to go in and support that vision and support the teachers who are investing in those children. It's a really wonderful way to, to live out the gospel that we've received and, uh, as we, we get active in the community. Uh, but really, there's a few uh, few other reasons I want to help you to understand why we're moving. And we're going to talk about these things uh, leading up to it, because we need to all be moving together. First of all, it, this move to Gregory Lincoln uh, gives us room to grow. And so the facility, we're going to be mo- meeting in a cafetorium, and that's uh, a pretty, pretty cool space, and so it gives us some room to grow. In fact, we figured out that we can grow uh, up to... Um, Uh, In theory, 283 people per gathering... Uh, that we have there, whereas here, frankly, if you go by the rule of when you're 80% full, you're full. We've been 80% full in this room for a while. So, so that's very exciting, gives us room to grow. It's also more accessible than the YMCA. We've, we've found that this location seems like you have to cross a mountain range to get over here if you're crossing over 45 for many people, and that's just kind of the dynamics of, of church planting world. When people have to cross freeways or go into a different neighborhood, they feel like they're going to another planet. And so we're more accessible in that location and we 're more visible, uh, so we 're going to get to kind of make people aware of the fact that we exist. Not everybody that lives in that neighborhood uh, will come to church will come to Christ, but we want to put ourselves in a position where we get the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with as many people as God would have us, and so we think that 's a pretty pretty cool location. So we are very strategic in moving over there, and uh, not only are we strategic, we believe god 's sort of compelling us to move. And I didn't make this decision by myself, although I'm leading out in the decision. uh, A number of your elected leaders have made this decision. And so we're very, very excited about going. And I, I sense that many of you are excited. Now, the question is that you might, the question that you might have is, well, how can I help with this move? There's two ways that we're asking you to help. First of all, we're asking you to go. We need you to commit to going with us. Anytime... A vision calls people to commit to something. That vision will repel people, people will lean out, or people will be drawn in. And so I realized that in the move, not everybody that's a part of our church right now will go with us. And so I want you to know that, 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 uh, frankly, uh, that kind of stuff keeps me up at night. But I am trying to trust the Lord that, okay, as we go into this community and make this move and and believe that God is sending us there, that not all of you will go with us. But I hope that all of you will. I just want you to know that. So if you have questions or concerns or thoughts or what's in your mind right now, uh, this still is a conversation. And so please, please uh, ask them. And I want to help you to understand why we're going, how we're going, and why it's going to be better and all that kind of stuff. All right? So, and then the other way that we're asking you to help is to give. We are in the month of May asking God to provide $70,000 for this move. That's a lot of money. In fact, that's two to three months what is given normally by the mission partners of Neartown Church to see this mission accomplished. And some of you give regularly. Most of you give regularly. Some of you have not yet accepted the invitation to the joy of giving, and we're discipling and teaching you and inviting you to be a part of that. Uh, we uh, hold to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We want you to be cheerful givers in response to what God has done for you. And so that's our kind of ongoing invitation. But this month, we're asking God to provide $70,000. You say, well, what in the world is $70,000 going to pay for? You know, I mean, how much does it cost for everybody to drive an extra mile and a half? Well, $70,000 is broken up. And I have a card, and there's one on your chair I just want you to look at because we want for you to understand where this money is going and what it's needed for, okay? And uh, if this isn't enough for you, we actually have right here, uh, this may be 20 pages of a proposal listing out, detailing every dollar spent. And so you may be interested in that uh, and want to know kind of where it's going to go. Those are available to you at the next steps table in the back. We would have given everybody one, but we're trying to, you know, save the earth, save the trees, and we didn't want to. Okay, so uh, so so on this card right here, you see this Project Gleck, And let me, at the risk of telling you too much and things that you're not interested, let me just explain these items to you because this is important, all right? Uh, first of all, $9,000 for hospitality. This is signage, what people look at when they come into the space. We're having to take a very blank building and turn it into a church and help people get from outside the building to inside the building to where their kids are going to go, where the worship space is, and that is a big chunk of money. And so we have all that listed out, how much that costs. It does cost money for signage and for branding and all of that kind of stuff, okay? Cases. We are a portable church, so anything we put out, we have to pack up. In this room, we get to pack everything in this closet over there, and we have a little storage unit over here. But in the school, we're going to have to put everything we own in these cases that will roll. And what this also will do is make it easier on those people volunteering to set it up and tear it down every single week. And so these cases are custom-made based on the items that we've purchased to do the ministry that God's called us to do. So that is not cheap. That's $13,000. We have right around $17,000 that we're going to be using to buy the kids' stuff. Now, uh, you should know that in this facility... Most of, 95% of what we use to disciple, teach, love on, care for, uh, and, help have the kids, and help the kids have fun, most of it belongs to the YMCA. So we are leaving with basically nothing. We have to buy it all new. That $17,000 basically puts us in rooms in the school where we're going to be having uh, portable walls so that we're not messing with the children's... Um, with the stuff that belongs to the school. So you'll walk into a room and there'll be an area sectioned off by the walls that we set up every week, these short walls. There'll be carpet, there'll be chairs and tables and uh, there'll be uh, other things that help us to serve the kids. That stuff adds up. If you wanna know exactly what it is, it's in here in the proposal. And then the worship space. We're walking into a cafeteria, and it's basically a room with a state. There is really nothing else. We're having to go in and to put up lights and sound. They don't have these things. Now, here's one thing that's really, really cool about it. We have gone to the school, and we've said we know, and we've listened to the principal, and one of his, one part of his vision for the school is to boost the fine arts program. And the fine arts program uh, is is really... Uh, a beautiful kind of thing among the children. It gives them opportunity to experience something they might not experience otherwise. Well, they have no sound system to provide a place for them to uh, show what they've worked hard learning to do in the areas of choir and drama and all that kind of stuff. So we've gone to them and said, hey, we want to basically donate to you a part of our sound system, install it, it's yours, and we'll use it on Sunday. Then you can use it all during the week. And so it's really a gift. So this isn't just about... You know, buying stuff, it's cool for us, but this is a way we can also serve that school. $29,000 for equipment, sound equipment, you may think that's a lot of money. Uh, I promise you, ask anybody. I mean, there's Andrew and Ty and uh, these guys that for a living deal with equipment and electronics. $29,000 is a drop in the bucket compared to what we could be spending. You know, we have to buy a projector and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so there you go. There's that. So here's why I tell you this. Some of you are feeling compelled to give. And you say, you know what, my heart is in making sure people feel warmly welcomed. And you might want to say, you know what, I want to give to the Lord uh, this amount of money that is going to make our hospitality top-notch. Others of you uh, have an interest in, uh, in the portability of the church. And you say, you know what, my gift to the Lord, now hear me on that. These gifts aren't to me they're not to the church, they're not to Gregory Lincoln. Ultimately, these gifts if we have a biblical view of giving are to the Lord. So we're saying, God, we're giving you this this amount of money cuz we feel compelled by you to give it and uh and and we have in mind The the cases or NT kids, some of you are wanting to do that with kids. And we're also trying to teach our kids and get them a part of uh, the giving in this campaign. So if you have children, you know that we're encouraging them. In fact, today they'll take something home where they get to pray about what would God have them give. Now, my children, all of them have money. It's not a lot of money. I make sure of that. Um, no, it, it, all of them have money. They pick it up here and there. They find it. You know, Keaton earns it. The boys scavenge for it. It's basically the way it works. And, um, and so, so we're going to teach our children in the midst of this. Now, if you are like me, uh, you don't have a lot of discretionary money. I mean, I don't. I've got four kids I live in the city, uh, you know, work for a nonprofit. I don't have a lot of extra money laying around. So I'm asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to give? knowing I don't have a lot of discretionary money, I will have a lot of extra. Even if I said, God, I want to give $15,000, I don't have it to give. And so Jeannie and I sat down this week, we began to pray and think, and um, and and I told this story to the staff this week, and Cameron encouraged me to tell it to you, and I don't tell it in hopes, I'm, not try, I'm hesitant to because it kind of sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but uh, I'd really rather not. But uh, so we're sitting down in one area where we, Spend more than maybe we should is on our television, our television package. So I thought, well, that's a way we can save $140 a month. So I called the cable company and I talked to them, and they basically said that they would put it on hold. And it uh, cost me $3 a month to put it on hold and not have it at all. So we thought, okay, we can do it with that internet, we can do it with that TV, we can save some money, and that would give us something to give. Well, so I get home, I tell the kids, and uh, I gave them the speech. You know, the speech that five years ago somewhere around there, no one had internet, and all of us survived. You know, X number of years ago, whatever it was, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago, uh, you know, no one had television, you know, and, you know, and they're like, what? It's my own personal hell, you know? And uh, so uh, I gave them the speech, like, we're going to deal with that internet for, you know, for a month, and we're just going to give this to the Lord. So 24 hours later, I called back AT&T, and I reactivated our internet, and... Um, <laughs> Because I realized that we couldn't do it. And, but I did get a lower package. And so they lost some channels. This is a silly thing, but they lost a lot of the channels that they like to watch. And, uh, and it saves us like 50 bucks a month. And so I'm telling them, I'm saying to them, you know, the reason we do this, it's not because we're poor. In fact, we are, anybody that lives around here is richer than the majority of the world. It's not because we're poor, but it's because we've chosen to to live like this so that we can give more to the Lord because what God is doing lasts more than these TV shows. And uh, so I said to my daughter and my son, I said, uh, I said, would you rather us quit supporting our compassion child or would you rather have Cable. And, of course, they were all like, well, we want to support our compassion children. And so then they understood. So that's the kind of conversation I think it's good to have. And there are other ways. And so I would just want to ask you to, to really prayerfully consider how much you'll give. Okay? Forgive me for talking so long about that, but this is really important. This is the most important kind of strategic move uh, that we've done since we started the church. And so I want everybody to understand why and how we're thinking about money and about the move and all that kind of stuff. Okay? All right, so let me pray, and then I'm going to open John 8. God, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're doing, God. And God, I'm just so grateful for the way you're working in our church. I'm grateful for the gospel, God. I'm grateful that we've received it, and we get to deliver it to one another weekly, and also to those that are around us, God. I'm glad that we get to live it and uh, in our in our everyday lives, God, and, and we get to hear about it as we gather and open your word. So God, I pray that this word will come alive in our hearts and in our minds, and so we love you, and I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. It occurred to me while I was praying that I wanted to let you know that so far we've had given $6,030 to the, uh, to the project, so that's very, very good, $6,030. Yeah, I think that that, yeah. So 6,000, or almost 10% of the way there, and I believe God's going to provide what he wants to provide so we can have what we need uh, according to his perfect will. So I don't feel any pressure. If you feel pressure other than the Spirit of God just compelling you to give, don't, because that's that's how we want to give cheerfully. All right, so here we are in John chapter 8, and this is a really incredible story. You know who John is? John writes... Uh, this gospel, this story about the life of Jesus. John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, we know. So John says in 1 John, another letter that he has written, that he's writing what he's seen and what he's felt. He's put his hands on Jesus. And John is writing so that you will believe, so that you have life. Now, it's my hope that as we open God's word this morning... Uh, And we work to understand the Bible that you will fall more in love with Jesus and more clearly understand who he is and what he's done for you. It's not my ultimate hope that you would love the Bible more or love the church more. But I want for you to love Jesus because he's worth loving. And I want for your your response of obedience to what God calls us to do to be a response to your love for Jesus. Now, we need to learn the Bible, and we need the church because without these things, our hearts tend to drift. We sang about that, actually. We're, 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 we tend to drift. This is why we must be committed to community, to gathering on Sunday morning and gathering in home groups during the week is because without it... Uh, our hearts drift towards other things our hearts according to John Calvin are an idol factory and so we can produce these idols and then our hearts begin to drift towards those things and so we study God's word so that we can see Jesus for who he is so that we will more fully love him and experience the life that God has called us to experience so in this story in John chapter 8 this woman is caught in adultery so i want everybody to gasp i'm going to say that again because this is really important this Woman is caught in adultery. Thank you. It's drama. She's brought to Jesus, and she's brought to Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you know who they are? They're the religious leaders in and around the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple is where Jesus is in this story. It's a place of religious activity. It's a place Jesus finds himself several times in John's gospel, and he's teaching. What's he teaching? He's probably helping people understand what the Old Testament is saying through the lens of this new kingdom that he's talking about. One where, you know, uh, blessed are those who seek first this kingdom, this kingdom of righteousness. So so this, this woman is brought before Jesus and these scribes and religious teachers in front of the crowd say to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Some of you don't. Care. Or this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? Now, he says, or the scribes and the religious leaders here are referencing the law. Do you know what it means by the law? Some of you are new to the Bible, so I want to help you to understand. Um, in the Old Testament, whenever God selected a group of people called the Israelites. He gave to their leader, Moses, a list of rules for them to obey. So think of like the Ten Commandments. But not only were there Ten Commandments, but there were also ceremonial laws and civil laws. There were a whole list of rules. And God made a promise to Israel. He said, if you obey these, you'll be blessed and you'll be counted as righteous. If you disobey these rules, you'll be punished and you'll be counted as unrighteous. Pretty simple, right? Here's a list of rules. Obey these, you'll be blessed. Disobey them, you'll be cursed. If you obey them, you're righteous. If you disobey them, you're unrighteous. This is the story of the Old Testament. Well, Israel throughout its history was unable to completely and fully fulfill the law of God. Yeah, there were times where they obeyed the list or parts of the list. But there were many times, in fact, if you read the Old Testament, a whole lot of times where they could not fully and perfectly fulfill this list that God had given them that they needed to fulfill for them to be counted as righteous. This story of the Old Testament sets the stage for one who will come and perfectly and fully fulfill the law the Old Testament law. And we know him to be Jesus. This is what Jesus has done. He's come to fulfill the law. Not to do something else other than the law, but he's come to fulfill the law perfectly. And then what he's going to do, fast forward to the cross, is take the punishment deserved by all those who transgress the law or disobey the law. So the law, and this law that these scribes and Pharisees are referring to here, invites people to righteousness through perfect obedience to it. So the question is, who can be perfectly obedient to the law? Who? No no one. I mean, when we think of innocence... Many of us would would think of a child, an innocent child. I have got four children. We love it. People ask me all the time, what's it like to have four kids? I'm like, it's wonderful. And I'm always being sat on at some point. But if any time around my house, you know, I love it. There's lots of activity. I love being in church with my kids and wrapping my arms around and praying for them and telling them I love them and worshiping God. I mean, I love having a big family. If I lived in the country and I had a big shed, I'd have about 20 of them, Um, So so I love them. Um, But one thing that you know about children is they are not innocent. I mean, very early on, you realize they're not innocent. Uh, Just recently, my fourth child, Dryden, you know, when you're the number four, you basically uh, aren't paid attention to unless you're, you know, uh, doing something you shouldn't be doing. And because, you know, the other three, they're kind of like, there's just so much activity. And um, so the other day we were at the house and, uh, and I noticed, it just struck me like, The kids, you know, my older three are over here, and I have no idea where Dryden is. And so I call out, Dryden, no response, Dryden, no response, no response. And so finally, uh, I hear this, yes? And I knew in the yes that he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. So he comes down, and I say, Dryden, what have you been doing? What, Dad? (laughs) Now, what you might be able to imagine as I'm telling the story, I can see is that all around Dryden's lips, there's chocolate. <laughs> and he was upstairs, and I know one thing that's upstairs is my daughter has a stash of candy that she works hard to hide, being the only girl, right? She's got to work hard to hide her stuff. But he was up there eating it, and so I say to him, Dryden, what have you been doing, buddy? Nothing, Dad. I said, have you been eating candy? You know what he said? No. <laughs> I mean, th- so, so here he is, a child so innocent, but he, even that child is not innocent. All I had to do was say, Keaton, drive's been eating your candy. And he learned his lesson. <laughs> she exacted justice on him. Um, so, so in the same way, no one is innocent and no one is able to obey the law perfectly. You're not and I'm not. I mean, I'm paid to be a Christian. I can't obey the law perfectly. There is a standard of righteousness It's called the law. So when Jesus showed up, the Jews are trying to trap him. And we see their motives in verse 6. It says, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So what Jesus has a growing reputation for is being someone who cares about the marginalized, cares about uh, people that don't have a voice themselves. And so what Jesus is going to do, or what they're trying to do, is get him... Uh, and then, Well, then also in this time, although the Jews had a law that anybody that committed adultery was to be stoned, the Romans had a law that said that the Jews cannot um, cannot uh, do capital punishment. And so what the religious leaders are trying to do is they're trying to trap him. Is he going to disobey Rome or is he going to disobey the Jewish law in the front of all the, these Jewish people? So this is a problem. Well, you should know that throughout John's Gospel... Jesus has established himself as an authority above the law of Moses. He does this time and time again. So this makes these religious leaders really, really, really mad because they know the law of Moses and they have tweaked it and adjusted it and figured out a way to make everybody think that they can obey it, although they were unable to. And uh, they got so mad at him, eventually they killed him for it because anybody that claimed the authority to, to be above the law of Moses had to... It was basically implying that they were God, and certainly that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Explicitly and implicitly, he claimed to be God. Well, he got killed for it. So this crowd gathers, the stage is set. They may be remembering the teaching of the Old Testament. If a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. So the stage is set. What will Jesus do? This woman is guilty according to the law of Moses. Now, imagine that you live during this time. Imagine. And uh, that for whatever reason, your sins got out. And the religious leaders brought you before Jesus And you are in the place of this woman. Imagine that. You were caught. You're going to be judged based on the law of Moses. Would you be counted as righteous or unrighteous? You say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, you have lied. You have lusted. You have uh, pride in your heart. So have you broken the law at any one place? I know I have this week, this morning. Would you be counted as righteous or unrighteous? Think about that. In verse seven, Jesus looks out and he says these words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, the stage is set. She is guilty according to the law of Moses. She deserves to die for her sin, to suffer the punishment for her sin. She'd been caught in the act. Jesus says, let him who has no sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, when I read that, I think to myself, well, does this mean that sin's not a big deal to Jesus? Does this mean that it's not a big deal when somebody breaks the Old Testament law? When somebody lies or cheats or has pride or is jealous or worships some God other than the one true God? Is that, what does that mean? Does this mean that sin is no big deal? Well, that's an interesting question because people live or believe in this way. It's not a big deal. You decide what's wrong for you and I decide what's wrong for me and we kind of choose our own way. But do you know that in the Bible, it actually talks a lot about God and his perspective or feelings about sin. Uh, sure, we know that God is a loving God. God, 1 John 5, 8 said, says that, God is love. But did you know also that God hates sin? Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family. Now this is interesting. So the Bible says God hates sin and intimates that God doesn't intimate, says that God also hates the sinner. I mean, that's hard for us to hear, but it is in the Bible, so we need to think about what it, what it, uh, what it means. God hates sin. So this woman before Jesus, when God looks at over her and he sees this, this woman who's guilty of breaking the Old Testament law and adultery, how does he feel about that sin? He hates it. So here we have Jesus, God in the flesh with this guilty person near him and under the law, she is guilty and and Jesus would be completely justified in condemning her as unrighteous and saying, get her. These scribes and Pharisees that are holding these rocks, just throw them at her, get her. But Jesus has a new way. No longer will righteousness be merited based on works, but it is now available through grace. This is the gospel message. Here, Jesus is reestablishing righteousness, not based on whether or not she was able to keep the law or you're able to keep the law or I'm able to keep the law, but righteousness is now available through grace, undeserved favor unmerited favor something that you did not earn and i did not earn so here we are at the feet of jesus in the first century we're guilty we're condemned they have the right to stone us for our adultery and our pride and our jealousy and our lying and our worshiping false gods they have that right but what jesus has done he comes on the scene and he stands before the rocks by dying on the cross He takes the punishment that we deserve. This is the good news of the gospel. This is grace. And so Jesus looks at this woman, knowing her sin, seeing her sin in the presence of all of these people, seeing her adultery. This is the amazing thing about God. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he had in mind your, your worst sin. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. I know it's hard. I mean, you think about the worst thing you've ever done, and some of you in here have done some really bad things. That's <sighs> kind of a joke, but you know what I'm saying. But Jesus died for that. He had that in mind. He offers to us grace. This is the gospel. This is the message we preach. We don't preach a message that says that you've got to clean up yourself before you come to God. No. We preach a message that says you come to God, you lay before Him with all of your crap. And Jesus says to you, I don't condemn you. Go on and sin no more. This is what He says to this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Does Jesus mean it doesn't matter if she commits adultery? No, of course he wouldn't say that. We know that that God cares about our purity. But what he's doing here is he's reestablishing righteousness, not based on works, but based on grace. He's inviting this woman to come to God under grace. And then he tells her to to don't don't sin anymore. Why would she not sin anymore? It's in response to the goodness of God demonstrated to her by freely forgiving her of her sin. She's saved by grace. Jesus invites people to righteousness through grace. This is the message we preach. This is the message we take with us as we leave this place, as we go to work tomorrow tomorrow as we live our lives. So, so here you are. You're at the feet of Jesus in the first century with all of your sin exposed. And the question is um, this for you. Do you want to live under the law? Because under the law, what are you counted as? Unrighteous, if you've broken the law, which all of us have. The Bible says there's no unrighteous, no not or no one righteous, no, not one, according to the law. So do you want to live under the law or do you want to live under grace? I don't know about you, but I choose grace. In this life, God is mercifully awaiting a response. And so here we are this morning, pressed with the question, do we want to come to God under the law or under grace? Will you present your life before God based on your own righteousness and ability to keep the law or based on the righteousness of Christ. You know, there will be a day when all of us stand before God. And what will be different about that day as we stand before God and are at the feet of Jesus is that we will be judged based on the decision we make in this life. We won't have an opportunity in that. Someday we'll stand before God and he will look at us and he will see either someone who's under the law and he'll judge us according to the law or he'll see someone that's under grace and we'll be judged according to his righteousness. Our sin can be paid for if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus. This is the good news of the Bible. And this message is the message we preach. So today, again, your choice is, will you be under the law? Or under Grace, we like to think that this woman chose under grace it 's interesting in the story because part of the story is that Jesus kneels down according to the text, and he 's writing something in the sand and there 's been a lot of speculation as to what he 's writing it doesn 't say what he 's writing but it 's interesting uh, if you consider that in the Old Testament, whenever somebody was accused of Adultery. They'd be brought to the temple, and then the priest would write in the dirt their sin. So everybody could see it, but you know, they wouldn't have to look at it forever. But just to get it out there. And so what I like to think happened is that Jesus is writing in the sand the sins of all of the people, all of our accusers. And so maybe what he's done is he's writing the sin of all the accusers in the sand, And then he stands up and he says, let him who has no sin be the first to cast the stone. And these accusers look at the ground. They see a list of their sins. And the oldest of them, traditionally the one who'd be the first one to throw the rock, and probably the one who had a longer list of sins because he lived longer, the oldest of them began to drop their rocks and leave. And what we can think of is this, is that whenever Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for us to come before God and the sin is just, the writing in the sand is dusted away. There's no writing in the sand. What God sees is grace, not a list of what we've done wrong. This is the good news of the Bible. This is the message we preach. So we go from here and we sin no more, not because we can... Earn forgiveness. We sin no more in response to that gospel. We share Christ with others in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give of the resources that God has given us. Not because we feel like if we give, somebody's twisting our arm or God's twisting our arm. Like, if you want me to bless you, you better give. Or if, if, if you really love me, you'll give. No, it's like, God, I gladly give. I gladly reduce my cable package, and no longer have ESPN during the NBA playoffs. I'm praying through that still. Because, God, you're good, and I know this. I know that there are people that are still under the law, and if they were to die, they'd stand before you and be counted as unrighteous and be forever separated from you, and that matters to me. Thank God for the good news of the Bible. Thank God for the story of this woman. Thank God for the grace made available to all those that will turn towards it. Let's pray together.